0: Hello and welcome to the 13th episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Anna Prataldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting this podcast with me is, as usual, Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And joining us today, we have Philip Lees, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will discuss a decision interpreting a force majeure clause in light of US sanctions, as well as look at a further decision on trial witness evidence. I'll go on to cover some decisions on embargo judgments and privilege, and finally, Philip will look at some recent cases on
1: developments concerning cryptocurrencies. So I'll hand over to Maura to start. Thanks, Anna. I'm going to start with a case on force majeure in the context of sanctions, which is obviously uh, an issue a lot of commercial parties are, are grappling with in light of the current crisis in Ukraine. The case is mirror shipping and RTI. And essentially what the court decided was that a ship owner was entitled to rely on a force majeure clause in a shipping contract where the charterer's parent became subject to U.S. sanctions. Now, the sanctions didn't bite directly on the ship owners, as they were a Dutch company rather than a U.S person subject to the relevant restrictions however it was accepted that the effect of the sanctions would be to delay us dollar payments made by the charterers under the contract which in turn meant that the ship owners were not prepared to go ahead with performance i won't go into the facts which are relatively complex but there are two key points to take away from the court's decision The first is that although a party has to use reasonable endeavours to overcome the impact of a force majeure event, which was an express requirement in this case, but it would be implied anyway, it seems that a party is not obliged to accept anything other than contractual performance in exercising those reasonable endeavours. So in this case, for example, the ship owners were not required to accept the charter's offer to pay in euros rather than the contractual currency of US dollars even though the charterers offered to pay any additional fees and and so forth that would be incurred as a result of paying in euros. Now, that contrasts with the principles relating to mitigation, as there may be an obligation to accept reasonable proposals to mitigate loss arising from an opponent's breach, even where those proposals involve non-contractual performance. But it seems from this decision that that's not the case in terms of reasonable endeavours to overcome the impact of a force majeure event. Um, The second point from the decision is that there's no requirement that a force majeure event directly prevents or delays performance without any intervening decision-making process on the part of the party relying on the clause. So a party's decision that's taken in reaction to a force majeure event will not necessarily break the chain of causation between the force majeure event itself and the non-performance, at least where that decision is reasonable. So my other case uh, that I want to cover is is one in which the court has applied the new requirements for trial witness statements introduced last April. I've spoken about several such decisions on this podcast, but this one's worth noting, I think, in in part because the judge said it was the clearest case of failure to comply with the practice direction that he'd seen since it came into force. The case is Greencastle and Payne, and it concerns an IP dispute relating to a a rugby-themed podcast. Uh, The defendants applied to strike out various passages of the witness statement of the claimant's CEO, and the judge agreed that the statement failed to comply with the practice direction in a number of respects. So first, it contained matters that were not within the CEO's own knowledge, including speculation on the thought processes of third parties. So just to give an example, the statement said... um, I have heard from several sources within the industry that wish to remain confidential that this was being done by the defendants. Any such touting being done by the defendants will have poisoned the well from the perspective of potential sponsors. So that was speculating about the impact on third parties. Um, Second, the statement contained mere commentary on documents in the defendant's disclosure. So for instance, it said that the claimant's suspicions of touting had been validated by documents seen from the defendant's disclosure, and it went on to give examples. And thirdly, the CEO had used the witness statement to argue the case and put forward his own opinions, including, for example, to say that the defendant's activities would have confused a significant proportion of listeners into thinking that they were relaunching the particular podcast. The judge rejected the suggestion that it was more convenient in case management terms just to let the witness statement stand and argue about the significance of all this at trial. Um, He said the whole purpose of the practice direction was to avoid having witness statements that were full of inadmissible and irrelevant material, which had to be disentangled at trial, often by lengthy cross-examination. So it was better to deal with it now. Um, But he thought striking out the statement would be disproportionately punitive on the facts of that case, including I think because the CEO was the only witness the claimant was calling at trial. So instead the judge withdrew permission for the statement and directed that a compliant statement be served within a tight time frame. So basically the claimant would have to take on board the, um, the judgment um, and the criticisms of the statement and put it all right. But anyway, that's another decision which shows that the courts will not tolerate serious breaches of the requirements for trial witness statements and suggest that in cases of serious non-compliance, the court's likely to require the offending party to remedy the situation rather than just leaving the matter to be sorted out at trial. And of course, in very serious cases, the court may simply strike out the statement or elements of it.
0: Thanks, Maura. The first cases I want to talk about concern embargoes on judgments and more specifically when things go wrong and the embargo is breached. So, as you'll know, where the court is going to hand down a reserve judgment, it provides a copy of the judgment to the lawyers and parties in advance, usually a couple of days in advance, on confidential terms. Those terms are set out in a practice direction, PD40E, And in summary, neither the draft judgment nor its substance can be disclosed to any other person or used in the public domain and no action can be taken other than internally in response to the draft judgment before it's handed down. Any breach of the rules has to be drawn to the court's attention and may be treated as a contempt of court. So what does that all mean in practice? The Court of Appeal has recently taken the opportunity to give guidance as to what should and and more importantly what should not be done under the embargo. In uh, Council General for Wales, Council's chambers accidentally jumped the gun and published a press release on a case Council was involved in the day before judgment was handed down. As soon as the error was picked up, the press release was deleted from its website and social media and the senior practice manager wrote to the court explaining that there had been a miscommunication in chambers and apologising for the incident. The master of the roles wrote to the barristers personally emphasising the strict provisions of the practice direction and seeking a written explanation as to precisely what had happened. And he also called them into court for an oral hearing. In his written judgment, the judge said it seemed, anecdotally at least, that violations of the embargo are becoming more frequent and he wanted to send a clear message that the embargo must be respected. He added that, In future, those who break embargoes can expect to find themselves the subject of of contempt proceedings as envisaged by the practice direction. The purpose of handing down a judgment in draft, the judge explained, is to enable the parties to make suggestions for the correction of errors, prepare submissions, agree orders on, on consequential matters, and prepare themselves for the publication of the judgment and not for any other purpose. He highlighted a number of specific errors in this case, including that individuals in the clerk's room and chamber's offices were given a summary of the draft judgment's contents in the form of the press release. That wasn't necessary for any of the allowed purposes and shouldn't have happened. In fact, the judge commented drafting press releases to publicise chambers is not a legitimate activity to undertake within the embargo. It's different where a party wishes to issue a press release immediately on hand down and enlists the help of counsel or solicitors with such preparations. But he said barristers and solicitors are not parties to the proceedings and have no need to prepare themselves for publication in that way. The other decision is another by the Court of Appeal, the PIFSS case, where a solicitor to one of the parties intended to send a WhatsApp message to five senior lawyers at his firm, telling them that their client had won in the Court of Appeal on a jurisdiction challenge and that the lawyer involved in the case was now free to become fully involved in another matter. In error, he sent the message to a different WhatsApp group consisting of 41 international lawyers. The error was picked up quickly, that message was deleted and it was then sent to the original intended recipients. The Court of Appeal commented that there had been a breach of the embargo, both in sending to the 41 international lawyers and in communicating the result of the appeal to fellow partners who who weren't involved in the conduct of the litigation. Communication with those partners didn't fall within the narrow purposes for which the draft judgment had been released, and it should have been reported to the court. The court also emphasised the need for the utmost care in communicating the content or substance of a draft judgment in the digital age. So what are the practical points for a party to take away from these and and other recent decisions? Well, firstly, limit the number of people who have access to the judgment, to those who need to see it in order to give instructions to the lawyers or prepare for the judgment becoming public. And that may well not be everyone who's been involved in the litigation. If there's any doubt, ask the court for guidance. Remind the people that do receive the judgment that they need to keep the judgment and the outcome confidential and that there are serious consequences if there's any breach. Avoid conversations where it's going to be difficult to avoid giving away the outcome of the case inadvertently. And if the worst happens, investigate promptly and thoroughly what's happened, which is going to be easier if you've maintained a clear audit trail and inform the court. The final case I want to mention is a case on privilege, Siam Commercial Bank, which is a rather unusual case. It shows that even if a party is in possession of the other side's privileged documents legitimately, it may not be allowed to use them in English proceedings. The claimants had obtained the bank's privileged documents from a third party by means of a subpoena in Thailand. The Thai courts apparently having decided the documents weren't privileged. The claimants then sought to use the documents in English proceedings against the bank on the basis that confidentiality in them had been lost. The judge noted that most of the reported cases are concerned with privileged documents obtained in error or by illegitimate means But uh, he considered those weren't the only categories of case in which equity would intervene and prevent use of privileged documents. Here the documents had been provided to the third party by the bank under a duty of confidence and had been obtained from that third party without any notice being given to the bank. And that was sufficient for the court to decide that the documents should not be available for use in the English proceedings. Well, that's it from me. I'll hand over now to Philip.
2: Thanks, Anna. I'm going to speak about a couple of cases relating to cryptocurrency, but just to set the scene, I want to mention some recent comments made by the master of the Rolls, Sir Geoffrey Voss. He's emphasized in a number of speeches how important it is for the UK and UK courts to be at the vanguard of blockchain and crypto technologies. These seem likely to revolutionise the way business is conducted in the coming years, similar to how the internet has revolutionised business and life in recent decades. So Geoffrey noted that litigation involving crypto assets and smart contracts is increasing significantly, including a major increase in litigation concerning crypto frauds. But cases are proving complex because of the difficulty of applying historic rules to the digital environment. And on that note, He said that a subcommittee of the civil procedure rules committee is looking at amending or expanding the grounds on which proceedings can be served out of the jurisdiction so as to remove an obstacle to proceedings aimed at tracing the proceeds of crypto fraud which by its nature tends to be very international so i just want to cover two recent cases which i think illustrate how the english courts are adapting and applying traditional rules in this novel context First of all, Tulip Trading Limited and Bitcoin Association. The claimant company, TTL, is owned by Dr Craig Wright, who claims to be the creator of the Bitcoin system, and his family. The claim relates to Bitcoin that TTL claims to own, but is currently unable to control or use, following what it says was a hack of computers located at Dr Wright's home office in Surrey which resulted in the loss of the private keys which would allow dealings in the Bitcoin. TTL brought claims against the developers and controllers of four digital asset networks, claiming that they owed fiduciary duties or a duty of care in tort. TTL sought a declaration that it owned the relevant assets and orders requiring the defendants to take reasonable steps to ensure that TTL had access to them, or for equitable compensation or damages. Now, in a decision handed down on Friday, the court refused to allow the claimant to serve the claims on certain of the defendants out of the jurisdiction, finding that there was no arguable case on the merits, either on the basis of the alleged fiduciary duties, or on the basis of a duty of care in tort. Interestingly, the judge said he could see it might be arguable When making software changes, developers assume some level of responsibility to ensure that they take reasonable care not to harm the interests of users, for example, by introducing a malicious software bug or doing something else that compromises the security of the network. And that if the defendants do control the networks, as alleged, there might be some duty to address bugs or other defects that arise and threaten the operation of the system. But that was not the complaint in this case. TTL was alleging that the defendants had an obligation to make changes to how the network works, and was intended to work, rather than to address a known defect, and there was no allegation that any of the defendants had any involvement with the alleged hack or had done anything to create or increase a risk of harm. The judge did not consider it properly arguable that the duty alleged could be treated as an incremental extension of the existing law on duty of care, particularly bearing in mind that the alleged loss was an economic loss, and the defendants had no control over the third party that had caused the damage, i.e. the hackers. This is obviously an important decision for those who are involved in the industry, and for those who invest in cryptocurrency. As it suggests that an owner of cryptocurrency has no recourse against the developers of the cryptocurrency systems, if they lose control of that currency, whether that's accidentally or due to a hacking incident. But it doesn't altogether close off arguments that developers or controllers of cryptocurrency systems might owe a duty of care in other circumstances, for example where their own actions have created a risk to users. We're preparing a blog post on the decision, and we'll add a link to the podcast page as soon as that's available. An earlier decision in this case is also interesting, in that the court granted security for costs to the claimant, but refused to allow the security to be paid in Bitcoin, as it found that would not result in protection equal to a payment into court, or a first-class guarantee. So far as I'm aware, that was the first time a party had offered Bitcoin a security for costs, and the court's principal focus in refusing to allow it was on Bitcoin's volatility rather than the principle of using non-fiat currencies as security for costs. It would be interesting to see what the court would do if a claimant offered security in the form of a more substantial deposit of cryptocurrency, to protect against fluctuations, or a stablecoin, which is a non-fiat currency specifically designed to have a relatively stable price, typically backed by a reserve asset like a government-issued currency. I expect this is a point that should be tested in a future case soon. The second case I want to mention briefly is Ion Science Limited and Persons Unknown. A previous decision in that case concluded that there was at least a serious issue to be tried that crypto assets can be treated as property within the common law definition of the term. And that point was not challenged in Tulip Trading. The Ion Science decision also considered the legal location of a crypto asset which can be significant in terms of being able to establish jurisdiction over proprietary claims relating to crypto assets in ion science the court concluded that the relevant location is the place where the person or company who owns the crypto asset is domiciled but in tulip trading the court said ttl had the better of the argument that it is in fact the place of residence or business not domicile, a distinction which made no difference on the facts of Ion Science, but mattered in Tulip Trading. In any event, in Ion Science, the claimant subsequently got judgment against a Scottish company in relation to the underlying fraud, and then sought to enforce it via a third party debt order against a cryptocurrency exchange in which the judgment debtor held an account which had been used to execute the fraud, and that account contained both cryptocurrency and cash. The court granted the order, which seems to be the first time a third-party debt order has been made in respect of cryptocurrency. The decision suggests that crypto assets may be capable of being traced and enforced against, similar to other classes of property under English law. Though obviously this is all a developing area, And there are still many uncertainties.
0: Thank you, Philip and Maura, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another update in a couple of months.